This week, we're going to do something a little bit different. It's a little bit different in a way that it's never happened for me personally. But Latif and I both just got off of short film shoots. Um, Latif just finished the pickups of his, was it yesterday or today, Latif? Yesterday. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. And I just finished three seconds of pickups for my first ever short about an hour ago. So we figured we would just kind of do a little bit more of a spitballing episode and talk about the experience that we just had making our shorts. And because we both did them for extraordinarily little. If, for instance, mine was literally made on zero dollars. I didn't spend one cent on this. And you pared down your crew quite significantly for all of it. So we think we talked about this last episode, but this would be more of a definitive wrap up and, you know, post analysis, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. So from where we were last week when we talked about this, how's your short shaping up? Like you did your pickups. Where are you at now? What's the experience been like? Oh yeah. Last night we went to one of the locations for a couple hours you know, right around sunset, we got some kind of moments I was looking for that weren't necessarily kind of scripted in, in like the natural sense. There's like a few moments that were, but I just wanted to get like moments of a character walking through an environment and just naturally like get him to do things and film it. So we, we ended up doing that and it was very loose, no crew, just me and the actor, which I always really like. And we could just like kind of run around and be on our feet. And, um, you know, it was really a nice experience. It was so much more relaxed than the actual, you know, method of shooting where you've got a crew and a procedure and you're always slating things. Like I had a mic directly into the camera and it was single system, so I didn't have to worry about slating. I could just hit record and we just go. Um, <laughs> so it was really, really nice. Um, I feel like those are the, you know, the moments when you can really experiment and, and look for things that you maybe wouldn't have thought of just because of, you know, the normal conventions of how we make films. Yeah, totally. You don't have to tell, you know, 10, 15, 20, or if you're on a huge set, 300 people like, hey, guys, take 20. We're just going to go film this sidewalk for a little while. And <laughs> be like, what the <laughs> hell is this guy talking about? No, precisely. Yeah. So one thing, the first thing that comes to mind for me is I feel like if you were to tell that to some people, the kind of logical argument would be like, well, you know, how can you go do that without the the gear you need? Like, what do you do for lighting? What do you do for this? What do you do for that? So if someone was to say that to you, what would your reply be? It's all about the story, man. Like, I think uh, I always go back to the Dogma 95 films. All those movies are really strong. And again, if you look at the rules, I don't remember them off the top of my head but you know you shoot with like a video camera you can't have um any uh sound recordist or anything uh you can't use any lighting you know and it's like super bare bones very minimal filmmaking and they still manage to make really compelling stories uh so i don't think like you have to have all this shit to make your film even when I went to do the pickups, I did bring some gear, but it was like the kind of equipment like you'd expect a photographer to take out when they do a photo shoot. I brought like a tiny reflector disc, a tripod, a camera, my lenses, 
and then um, my gimbal. That's it. No stands or anything. I am totally on your side for all of this, but for the person that's persistent or they, you know, they're starting to cave and say, you know, maybe I could kind of shoot little things like that. But they have the question of, you know, since you don't have your lighting gear, you just have this, you know, couple pieces of equipment. How do you make sure that your shots are still beautiful and up to par? Because if you go from, you know, having a crew and kind of the things you would think you would need on a principal shoot to doing pickups where it's just you walking, you know, through an environment. How do you make sure that that fits with the rest of the footage and how do you make sure it's still, you know, beautiful or horrific or whatever your tone is? Well, I think it's about giving yourself the time as well, because this location, it's like this big park. And when we initially shot there, um, there's a big dialogue scene that happens like around sunset. So as we're heading to that part of the park, we quickly got some pickups of a character walking through the park. And then immediately, instead of doing more takes in my head, I was like, okay, we got like two takes of this. I kind of know that I'm not going to be satisfied with this. So let's just go on to the dialogue stuff. So we just skipped it. And we went to the dialogue scenes and we got all that stuff, which is great because it was more important in the end. Um, and then on a separate day, I came back with the actor and then we, we took the time to actually shoot all those little moments and the walking and stuff because it was important for the film, but I didn't want to rush through it. I wanted to take the time and do it properly. So it was really just about giving yourself enough time to do it properly where you can really think about it. That way you're not rushed into it. And on the principal day, what was it that made you say, I'm not going to be happy with this? Was it that you had, you know, these people that weren't in the scene waiting on you to go shoot the big dialogue scene? Or what made you say, you know, forget about this for now. We'll come back to it with just him and I. Well, there there was one, only one actor. So it wasn't like this big wait or anything. But I kind of had a feeling that if we spend more time here, I'm going to end up you know burning precious time the closer it gets to sunset which is kind of crucial because it's a really crucial scene at the end of the film where two characters having a conversation and if it gets too dark then i can't film anymore so i'm gonna you know sacrifice these shots and then go get the more important stuff because i can always come back later to get the stuff um and i don't need that much equipment for it and i don't need all the crew i can just get a microphone and the actor and do it um, cause I'll be using the camera anyways. So, um, you know, just kind of like weighing very quickly, like what's the best thing to do in the situation. And, you know, immediately I kind of knew to skip it and come back to it cause we could always do it. Um, and it was the right de- decision too. Cause when we came back to shoot it again, I got footage that I'm really, really happy with and I had the time to actually do it properly. So I think, uh, mm. it worked out. So for you, it was just straight, we're losing daylight. Yeah, that's a big, that was a big factor. And, you know, for the person that's like, oh, but if you don't have all the, the lighting stuff and whatever, I mean, the first, the first thing is like, you're probably going to have a very small budget or a small crew. And if you're going to shoot in daylight, you're going to need big ass lights to <laughs> counteract the sun or big ass like, um, you know, negs or, or flops or whatever, uh, so automatically if you're shooting with a small budget in in the sun and uh, outside you're going to be using bounce boards and stuff um and then small like reflectors or whatever to kind of shape the light that you have much like we did in what we don't say on the beach scene had very few equipment when we're actually like setting up the shots 
It's really about positioning the actor towards the best lighting conditions that that makes sense for the film. And then just kind of working with that and, and making sure you're exposing properly. As long as you're well exposed and, and you kind of know how to model the, the light on the actor, then I think you're totally fine. Like it doesn't have to be this giant deal with like 30 flags and like like a giant white reflector or something. <laughs> In this hypothetical situ or conversation of you and this filmmaker asking you questions, I just picture he's like, no, man, you know what? I need my lights. And you're like, oh, you, you need lights? Like, I have a ton of light you can borrow. And he gets all stoked. He's like, really? Like, when can I pick it up? You're like, whenever you want, man. He's like, sweet. So how much is it? You're like, it's tons. So I got this great light called the sun. And all you need to do is work around it. It gives you so much light, you won't even know what to do with it. Yeah, in a funny way, that's kind of like, that's really what it is. You just have to use that giant source of light and, and kind of like shape whatever you're doing to fit. You know, you look at the location, you look at where you position your actors, you where you position your camera and just kind of do the, the quick, you know, like a uh, diagram in your head and, and figure out what works best. It just takes some planning as well. I mean, for me, like I didn't plan this stuff, but I've shot in these situations so many times that I kind of have a, a shorthand of like how I would approach shooting it. And, and sometimes I break those rules too, but it's really like, I think the more experience you get, the more confident you can be with just kind of going into something with less support systems with less equipment, less lighting and stuff, you can kind of just have the bare minimum and see what you can get out of that. And I find oftentimes when you take bold bold uh, chances like that, you end up getting really interesting images because you're not doing the safe thing. You're doing the more aggressive thing. Yeah, you know, this brings me to an interesting thought. So the short that I just shot is for this contest that's going on in Canada through CTV and it's for the upcoming I can't remember if I said this in the last episode or not but it's for the upcoming movie Tenet the Christopher Nolan movie and since there is a pandemic raging um, I knew should I try to make something I'm not going to have any help right like I can't hire people I wouldn't really want to and it's just going to be my wife and I shooting this, you know, obviously like I've written a bunch of stuff. I've produced some stuff and directed, you know, what we don't say, but I've never actually shot anything. So I've been trying to go through this. Like I told you before we started recording Latif, I'm basically doing my best Latif impression while kind of guessing what would be going through your head as I'm lighting something while also having nothing to work with. So like I had two lights that I got off of Amazon, which spoiler alert, I ordered and quickly returned, <laughs> but I had these two lights and they're fairly weak. If I'm to be honest, they're probably a little bit stronger than your average, you know, ceiling light of a regular house or apartment. Mm. But when you're trying to light a film set with that, it isn't much. And I didn't have any diffusion or flags or anything like that. So I was trying to shape light in a way that I had thought added some contrast. And again, trying to do my best Latif impression. And it literally got to points where I would have a light set up 
And I would say, okay, this is seems to be illuminating my entire frame. So I went and I got a black hoodie and I just draped it over the right side of the light to try and cut light off of one side of the frame. <laughs> and I was like, well, that I think this looks better. I don't really know. I know it doesn't look as insanely blown out as I think most very amateur stuff does. So this is a really long-winded way of me asking you for someone that's going out there and shooting something on their own for the first time, specifically anyone that doesn't have experience being a cinematographer themselves, what would you suggest to make the lighting seem less bad? I, th I think to simplify the setups. I think a lot of the times where you run into trouble is when you start to add more and more to whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. And this might be just like a, an issue of like not not getting to see how like, you know, really experienced cinematographers work or maybe just seeing really bad cinematographer, <laughs> cinematographers work <laughs> and, and just seeing like, I remember in film school, I was talking to a friend of mine recently he was talking about i remember um this uh cinematography instructor talking about this one setup he had to do for this short and he's like yeah you know we had, we had like 16 flags set up and all shaped in these ways to like block the light and you know these like reflectors and all this stuff and the sun and we bounced the light off of the van and and we're looking at the image and it was like that doesn't look very good <laughs> and it's like the point is like it it's it has to end up working it doesn't matter how many things you set up and and you could end up using no lights you can end up just using natural light and it, it could do the job so it's it's about simplifying the way you shoot and and i guess assessing the space you're in and realistically just thinking about like how would this place look you know if we we're gonna um, shoot here and I think the mistake a lot of times people make is start throwing lights up. And I think what you want to do is take all the lights away and then just sit there in the dark and think, if I lived in this place or if I designed this place, where would I put a light? And, I, and if it's an interior place, automatically I'd think of putting lamps on tables because I do that myself and I see that in houses. Um, and if, and if, if it's an exterior location, you're just thinking about where would street lamps be or what would like a i don't know like a neon sign from a store be and kind of like use that to kind of shape how you shoot something so if you didn't have experience and you had no idea what to do i would start by looking at what's already in the space for you be it a window lamps a street light and using that to your advantage because it's already there and it's already kind of natural because it exists in the space it's in um, by design and if you needed to add lights to get more exposure or to, I don't know, separate something to give more clarity or, or whatever, then you can do that. But I always say start with one light and then see if that's good enough. And if you, if you feel like you need more, and oftentimes you don't, then you can start adding. So that would be my suggestion. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because when I first set out to do this, like I remember... And it will always be ingrained in my memory. You saying that, like, think of it naturally. Where would the light realistically come from? So, for instance, the bedroom we're shooting in, my bedroom here, there is a street lamp 
just outside of the we have sliding doors instead of a window that lead out to a balcony so there's a street lamp that's just out there and i'm like okay so that's where the light's really coming we have two practical lamps in here so if i just wanted to bring that up a little then i could throw one of these lights out on the patio beam it in kind of fake it to be that street light and then if i really wanted to i could put another light near one of the practicals to kind of make it seem like just a really strong practical obviously it's out of frame right and then the other location we shot at was a parking lot and it's just me who unfortunately played the lead character <laughs> in a car and i'm in the front seat the entire time so for that i just threw up a light near the back where a street light was and the two things that you just said that really rung true were every time i tried to add more light it just went progressively worse and worse. It was like this really soul crushing snowball <laughs> because it's like we'd be in the, the bedroom and I would say, okay, you know, I can't really see what's going on here. I have the one light coming in through outside. Let's put another one here. Try that. I'd be like, Oh God, that looks fucking terrible. Why does that look terrible? Maybe if I move this light and then I would move it and I'd be like, Oh, that's, kind of dark and then turn it up and be like that looks worse than before what the hell is going on <laughs> and then eventually like i just took out that second light and cranked up the one outside and used the practicals and i'm like okay you know i'm still convinced that if it was a call it professional cinematographer he'd be like you know this really doesn't look that great but it looks a hell of a lot better than when i was trying to add an excessive amount of light and then the stuff that was in the car where i had the practical just or the uh the light mimicking the lamppost that looked pretty damn good mm -hmm. you know i had to adjust some light levels but it looked way better than some of the excessive lighting that i tried in the bedroom and then the second thing that really rang true and i really need your opinion on i think the listeners will get a lot out of it was i found and correct me if i'm wrong here that there's a huge difference of exposing something for your eye and saying like oh like this looks good compared to making it look similar in camera like I, the camera needs a hell of a lot more light to really bring out the image doesn't it yeah and this is something that you learn from experience but as well you just kind of learn from going through the whole process and, and what i mean is like i remember very early it was right after I graduated from film school. There was a short film being made from the writing program, and they wanted to hire like VFS grads to shoot it. So I came on to be the cinematographer, and there was this director who was a TV actor, but he wanted to direct some shorts, so he came on to be the director. So I talked with him. We came on to shoot the film. You know, he's a nice guy, but um, we we're shooting a scene in a bedroom. And it's supposed to be a, a night scene, like a, uh, a one lamp in the bedroom, very dark. This person wakes up and we can just see the lamp on his face kind of illuminating. Him. I got a quick question before you continue. Yeah. What genre was this? Because I think that adds great perspective in terms of lighting. Like, for instance, the thing I just wrote, you could probably call it a, th a thriller. So, like, what were you going for? Were you going for dramatic lighting? Like, is this a romance? What kind of genre are we talking that I, I don't know that's kind of tough to answer that specifically because i feel like if you choose your lighting based on genre it kind of 
it kind of makes the work super stale and predictable because I think narrows it. It it really does. Because some of my favorite movies, okay, like a movie that I think is great and I really love is Burn After Reading. Yeah, it's an outright comedy, but it's got dramatic lighting. You know, it's got like natural, interesting lighting with good contrast, but it's not lit like a generic comedy. Um, so I think like genre shouldn't dictate lighting. I think story and kind of uh, tone should more. And I, I think if you look at genre as a way to start off your lighting, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. So with this, with this thing, it was a comedy, but you know, because it was a comedy, I wasn't going to choose to light, you know, a night bedroom scene any differently. It was just kind of based mm-hmm. on what, what made sense in the moment. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's fair. Well, I mean, just for the sake of it, like what stereo, if you had to say stereotypical horror, thriller, drama, like where would the ratio of this lighting fall into? Uh, I guess it was a comedy, but it, you know, it all happens at night. So I don't know. It's hard for me to be like, it's, it looks like a night comedy movie. Like there's no frame of (laughs) reference for me for that. So, um, yeah. That's so good. It's a night comedy. (laughs) But you, you (laughs) kind of understand what I mean. Like that's a hard way to like talk about lighting genre doesn't really help. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Also, side note, we have to, like, in a pitch one day, we have to work that in somehow. So if we're pitching something like, oh, so it's comedy. Yes and no. (laughs) Technically, it's more of a night comedy. (laughs) It's like, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, sorry. Continue your story. You you have to light this bedroom seat. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we're shooting on, um, I'm trying to remember the camera. I think it was a... it was a Sony EX1. Um, and that's kind of like a pseudo documentary prosumer kind of camera. It's actually not so different from the FS5. It's like a very older version of a similar type of camera. But, okay. you know, it produces a decent image. I, I've worked with it before. And um, it, you kind of expose the same, you know, we're shooting in a kind of flat profile. And you want to make sure there's a healthy amount of exposure on the digital negative, I'll call it that. Um, but it's kind of like a, a film negative. You want to make sure there's enough light hitting the actual negative so you get an image. Because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that just, that's just how it works. You need to make sure there's enough light to, in order to see what you're shooting. So with, you know, with this scene, he wanted it to be dark. And I said, yes, I understand what you mean but we need to have exposure. Um, we need to make sure that we can see what's going on. So what we can do is we can light it with enough light that it isn't noisy and there's good contrast and it's dark. But mm-hmm. we don't want to like go so dark to the point that um, you're barely getting like a, a signal into the camera. Because at that point you've kind of screwed it up, because what you because you can because you can light it to be dark, with a healthy enough exposure that you can really pull it down to the place that feels right. Um, when you do the color grade, when you do the DA, mm. 
and you still have a clean image because there's enough um, uh, information there. There's enough information in the in the you know the face and the actor that you're exposing that it isn't noisy and it's clean. But then the shadows they they fall off in a nice way. But if you expose to the point where whatever you're looking at is so dark on the screen um, going into the camera when you bring it down in post that's kind of what you got all you'd be doing at that point is trying to bring the exposure up and maybe like reducing noise which is not what you want so i always yeah. i always um light and shoot night scenes with a very healthy amount of light that you're getting a good signal but there's still good contrast. You're still controlling it and you're keeping your ratios the same. But when you do the, um, you know, final DI, you can really pull the look um, to the kind of exact values that you want. You can get the blacks really black. You can get the highlights like just in that nice kind of sweet level where they're not blown out, but they're still kind of visible and all the skin tones and everything will look nice, but it's all exposed properly. It's not noisy. It doesn't look like, you know, ask because you, you know, didn't know how to light it properly. So, um, you know, use lights, light it properly, even in dark scenes. Um, don't push your ISO. Uh, there's, there's this thing, of, this is going to be super technical, but there's this thing about S-Log3, um, which is this picture profile that you shoot with the Sony camera. So we shot what we don't say in S-Log3. And what tends to happen is people will take uh, different camera profiles and when they shoot with the FS5, they'll use like one for dark scenes, one for light scenes. And personally, I think that's kind of a mistake, um, especially for shooting uh, movies. Uh, people tend to change the gamma curve, which is how the image is kind of displayed to you. And the S-Log profile is a very flat profile with a high dynamic range. People will go to a Rec. 709, which is kind of the TV standard, which is kind of what you are aiming for when you're doing the grade or if you're going to cinema it would be uh, something called p3 um, and when we shot what we don't say i shot the whole film in s-log even the night stuff and most people would say don't shoot night stuff in s-log and i'm and my point is i could shoot the night stuff in s-log because i had enough light so so that i could see an image it wasn't underlit and i didn't have to push the iso and get this like grainy image and there were moments where there was a little more noise present, obviously, but I totally felt like it was fine. I, I didn't feel like anything was like really underexposed severely. And we always had lights um, for most of what we shot. There were very few scenes where, where we had like almost no lighting, unless it was like daytime stuff. So it was enough to mm -hmm. make sure we had a strong image. So I always, you know, emphasize don't like shoot way too dark. If you're going for a dark image, shoot it properly, shoot it with enough light and then get there and, and finesse it when you're doing the grade later on. That's a, that a big chunk of information, but I hope that makes sense to whoever's listening. No, I think it's really, really, really helpful. I mean, to me specifically, and I can only imagine to a budding cinematographer that might be listening. I think it would actually could be a really, a really cool experiment for us to do is this one minute 50 or sorry 55 second not even one minute short that i made it would be really cool because obviously it's going to go to the public it's part of this contest kind of thing it would be great if we broke it down for a cinematography level because i know even that 
the difference between just my naked eye seeing something lit and being like, oh, that's really, really nice. And then the amount of light needed going into the camera was quite different. And then the difference in the image from, you know, I'm just shooting on a phone, just from the phone screen to when I brought it into editing, I really noticed that, you know, there's a, a second here where it's kind of has that noise and it's grainier than I would have liked. So the thing that comes off to me is this disconnect that your brain kind of doesn't naturally know, you know, between how much light do I really need to make an image on this digital realm you know and it's something that i find very very interesting so if we took this 55 second short that i made and just went through it scene by scene which you know there's only two of them it's not that long <laughs> and you could say for this you know seconds 18 through 21 you really should have bumped up the lighting by 20 percent, that kind of thing and really just give a, a kind of educational look at it I think that would be pretty beneficial. I know I'd get a ton from it. And I think anyone looking to learn more about lighting and cinematography would, you know, they'd have a good time listening to it. Yeah. I mean, we can kind of go through it roughly. Like, I, and I have to say for anyone listening, like I'm not like a technical wizard. Like I don't like lie. <laughs> well, I, I feel like <laughs> I know what I need to know enough so that I can do my job and I might do it, you know, way differently than the industry standard or how other people do it. I just have a workflow that makes sense to me in my head. But, you know, I'm not like, I know all the technical details about this and that and all that stuff. I read enough so that I understand how not to like completely ruin something. Um, but it's not so much about like being this technical wizard. It's just kind of about basically understanding, you know, a bare minimum about how you should shoot something. And then you can take that and it kind of applies to everything. And, and, you know, that big rant I went on was really just about make sure everything you shoot is well exposed. There's, you know, there's scenarios where you're not going to have that, obviously. But you want to be prepared and always try to get like a rich image with enough information, even if it's night, even if it's a dark scene. It doesn't have to be shot dark. <laughs> it doesn't have to be shot with no lights. Ideally, you want to shoot it with plenty of light, with good contrast that's already shaped. And, and good exposure um, and then you can finesse which a lot of people will always do anyways because you know with the gray that's kind of what you're aiming for is to really get the details right um, but you can't fix in an underexposed image it's very difficult mm -hmm. you know one question that I'd be interesting or I'd be interested to hear is a bit of backstory for this so Latif and I shot a web series pilot like half a decade ago, which has been so thoroughly buried. <laughs> and thankfully so, because it was a pile of shit. Um, but one of the things with it was we shot on the same camera that we shot what we don't say on. And you shot in that same S-Log format, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, but we didn't, well, more specifically, Latif didn't edit it and didn't have anything to do with color or anything on the posts. And, and the people that did edit and did do color on it really had no idea what to do with your footage i remember seeing the finished image and just thinking what the fuck is this this looks like complete just diarrhea dog shit <laughs> so 
how is it that, you know, we had a little less lighting for that in all fairness. And, you know, we weren't as experienced as what we are on what we don't say. But how could they take an image that was at least similar to what we don't say and make it look so just horrendously awful, strictly in post? Well, like, I think like a lot of the problem is what happened in that case is whoever their editor was decided to just do the color. And I think that's like a huge thing that happens nowadays anyways, where, you know, you're editing the film with someone, be it a short feature, whatever the hell you're working on. And then the editor will be like, yeah, I do color. <laughs> and oftentimes <laughs> they don't really do color. Maybe they do on their own videos or whatever, but they, they just kind of throw a lot onto it or, you know, some like filter look thing they bought from some cinematography website or something i don't know so like, like a preset right yeah just stuff there's so much crap out there i don't even know what they use there's like these like weird um vintage plug-in isn't it yeah some of sometimes just overlays like a vintage film look thing and and all this crap and in reality like all of these people have no idea how to actually do a proper grade on anything um, so I always say, like, seek out an actual colorist. There are plenty out there. Um, don't just leave it to your editor, unless your editor is legitimately a colorist as well. Um, <laughs> I, I always actually offer to do color on things that I edit as well, because I do color. It's something that I'm intimate with, and I've been doing it for a long time. Um, so I always offer it and, and tell whoever I'm working with, hey, I, I'm also a colorist. I can actually take your edited film through color properly and give you like a good product at the end. Um, but if you don't have that, then whoever's working with the footage it will likely really fuck up parts of it. They might get some of it right, but the majority of it is going to have problems. And that's what happened with that project because I took some of that footage and I graded it and put it into my reel. And it looks, and it looks great. Yeah, it looks fantastic. But it, it was properly um, processed before uh, finishing. Whereas whoever was working on it there probably just threw some LUT on it that they liked and didn't really understand how it worked because the LUT has to be tested. You have to know how to light and expose for a LUT um, and you have to test that. So if you're going to, I don't know, if you're going to do like a Fuji, Fuji film LUT on your film, and you're going to stick with that LUT throughout the film, then you need to shoot camera test for day, for night, for interior, for, um, I don't know, what, whatever lighting scenario, and you, and test it with that LUT and make sure you know how to expose light for that LUT because it's going to transform the image later on when you apply it. But if you're not doing that, and whoever this editor was didn't do any camera test, didn't shoot, <laughs> didn't shoot it because I did and had no um, conversation with me about the colors. So he just kind of Frankenstein some garbage together and that's why it looked so awful. So, uh, and S-Log is a, a flat, high dynamic range profile. So it looks very, very unprocessed um, and it gives you a maximum flexibility. I, I mean, unless you're shooting raw, but it gives you as much flexibility as you can to get like a really robust image. And if you don't know how to handle S-Log, then you will really fuck it up. And I've been, you know, doing photography for many years before I did all this film stuff. So I've been like, you know, editing raw 
flat images to you know bring them to life and in a way there's a lot of similarities with doing that and grading log footage because you have to really pull out um, the information and, and make the image kind of come to life so if you don't have experience doing stuff like that that you will very likely screw the image up and boy did they ever oh, yeah. you know it's a shame because there's still do you remember that one frame where uh the guy's sitting way up on the railing and he's looking down across the the kind of walkway to the girl mm -hmm. i still really like that frame mm -hmm. <laughs> like you know it's Maybe it's because it's like one of the first frames of anything that I could say I directed, but I think that that was a good frame. And then to see, you know, we, you and I both knew that this Finnish web series pilot was, it was going to be bad. Like there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The script was terrible, but I was at least excited to see some cool looking Finnish frames. And then I remember it was in this weird, like when they finished, it was in this weird, like black and white kind of muddy grayscale thing yeah they really like went in a weird direction with the look and, and it's kind of the mark of like an absolute amateur plus idiot <laughs> <laughs> because there are some wonderful amateurs out there this is like amateur plus idiot and that's how you get like a real disaster oh that's great i consider myself so, yeah. an amateur so <laughs> This is the last question I'm going to ask in terms of like the very specifics of cinematography, but what makes S-Log so much more difficult than, you know, your usual fucking, what, HD or whatever you would, what's the regular log? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> usually, um, well, there's so many different profiles now, but like, you know, when I shot with my, um, I don't know, like my Nikon, it would be like a custom profile that I would set up and I would kind of already do like a normal flat profile. But, um, for example, like if you're shooting for broadcast, you probably would shoot in like a rec 709, um, color space, which is like what you'd, um, see like on a normal, uh, television screen. Um, so it would be, you know, a little more baked in, it would kind of look like what you'd want it to. And then you could obviously do some more grading later on, but um, the image is pretty, pretty cooked in. So the saturation, the contrast, you know, the, the gamma levels, it'll all be kind of easy to see the image and kind of like look at that and be like, that's what I'm getting. You kind of know, but the thing with the log mm -hmm. is it's flat. And no one ever takes log and exports log. <laughs> and like, I like how log looks and they use that as a look. <laughs> um, it's not meant as a, a finishing kind of profile. I don't know. There might be some weird guy out there who's like, I like how log looks and they go with log. I don't know. But it's very uncommon. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a capture format. It's not a format used to export or finish anything in. Um, and I, I think that's why it's difficult because sometimes um, people shoot in formats that are already in delivery formats. You know, you can deliver a, pro uh, a, a project in Rec. 709 color space. And if you already shoot it in Rec. 709 color space, it kind of looks like what you're already going to give anyways, um, aside from some tweaking, I guess. 
but for the most part, S-Log is something that needs to be processed before it's finished. It needs to go through some processing. Um, otherwise, it's just like not really a usable image. It's just way too flat um, and kind of boring to look at. So why shoot on S-Log compared to Rec 7900, whatever? <laughs> um, well, it gives you uh, a bigger dynamic range. So you have a little bit more space on the edges. So if you're shooting like a, a scene with like, I don't know, a really bright lamp and a character is, is sitting by the lamp and there are... There's like a worry that, you know, that lamp is like, like way too bright and but it's giving the right amount of light on the character's face and you're shooting that in like, an, I don't know, in Rec. 7 or 9 or a different color space uh, or, or using like a different profile, you might get like a weird looking image because it's not able to hold all the detail. But, but if you're shooting in S-Log, um, S-Log 3 specifically, you can maintain the the exposure level of that lamp still keeps a nice exposure on the face and then everything kind of falls into place once you get into the grade because um, the shadows will kind of already fall to where they're supposed to go but because you've got this really bright source you don't have to worry about it being too bright because it's got a little more um, in the highlights to, ca to carry that information um, and and it helps when you're shooting like outside and in, in the sun or, you know, if there's like an overcast day and, and the sun is peeking through and it gets a little bright on, in the sky, you can still hold that information. You know, it's why we sh when we shot what we don't say on the beach, I was able to not use so many pieces of equipment and just kind of get a little light on the actors' faces and, and still keep the sky and the faces and everything kind of in the right levels. Um, and if I wasn't shooting in this log three, it would be a little more difficult to achieve that. This is all great information. And if the listeners are anything like me, the cogs of their brain are still turning, trying to digest all of this. <laughs> but I think it's good stuff. Um, so let's change, change um, direction for a little bit. In terms of the short you just did, what was the most challenging thing aside from not having crew like i know for me it was obviously like we've just been talking about wearing these hats that i've never worn before you know cinematographer actor all that kind of stuff but what jumped out to you as the hardest i think just trying to keep your eyes on everything that's going on um because you don't really have that kind of moment to take a step back and be like hmm let me think about this you're really going quickly and you have to make decisions, you know, in an instant sometimes about, you know, we'll shoot this on another day or, oh shit, it's raining, we can't do that scene today. Or, uh, you know, something schedule-wise or location-wise or weather-wise. There's quick decisions you've got to make constantly. And when you're the only one doing it, sometimes you can miss some other issues. Like... <laughs> There was a there's a quite severe and embarrassing problem that I had. Um, I was shooting a scene in a coffee shop and everything was fine. All the light was set up, and I'm shooting on this kind of small monitor. I only have the the onboard monitor on the Sony camera. Most people shoot with like an extra bigger monitor, but I just like 
that it's so light and small, but the problem is sometimes you kind of miss the image. You're just kind of looking at this cell phone size screen. And on the right side of the frame, the barn door was in slightly. So it was like half an inch of the, the actual shot in black, just because like the barn door was a little in <laughs> and I didn't see that. <laughs> and I remember looking at the footage, you know, the the night of and being like, fuck, how did I not see that? This looks, <laughs> that's like such a rookie amateur idiot mistake. Um, but it was just for like a couple of shots and I, I could kind of remove it without an issue. But it's one of those things where if I had more time and more um, people around me, I probably could have spotted something like that. So it's just sometimes missing little details, uh, which was, I guess, a little challenging. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. And I think I was talking to someone about this today. One of the things that people don't really talk about in terms of something that makes filmmaking either a lot harder or a lot easier is the ability to watch your footage on set. And I know even when we were shooting what we don't say, we had a monitor for, I'll call it roughly 50% of the movie. And I'm not someone that loves to just stand behind a monitor or sit in a chair and just, you know, not take my eyes off the monitor. I like to check a little bit in it, but then actually go see what's going on with my own eyes in terms of what's actually being shot. But I will say that just having that monitor there for reference and it, again, not being three inches like the monitor you had, like a real actual size monitor makes things quite a bit easier, even if it's just for checking frame or checking little things here and there. When you don't have one and you're either you have to rely on the little tiny one from the camera or like for some of what we don't say, I would literally just have to turn to you and be like, did that look good? The teeth. And you're like, yep. All right. Moving on. <laughs> it makes it a lot harder to do. Well, in a way, I almost feel like sometimes that's the better way to go. Um, oh yeah. How come? Well, it just, it's really it does a couple of things. It builds trust between the director and the cinematographer. Um, but it also mm. really makes the director focus on the acting. I think sometimes yeah, they'll get definitely. really worried about, or not even worried about, they'll just get really focused on like um, looking at, at the actual playback or looking at the screen as it's happening. And in a way you're not really seeing what's happening and i i feel like it's really crucial for the director to just kind of like turn the monitor away and, and stand next to the camera and just look at the actors um and just trust that your dp is capturing what you're um going for obviously like look at the frame while it's being set or set, set up and right before it's shot but once you start rolling turn the monitor away and just stand behind the camera and look at the actors, look at their hands, look at their movements, look at their blocking, their faces, all the micro expressions that you probably wouldn't miss on the monitor. Really watch them and just trust that your cinematographer is capturing, if he's competent, he's capturing what you're, sh what you're trying to shoot. Right. Um, I, I think that's like crucial. And I, I feel like sometimes you know, like we think we could just look at the monitor and do the same thing, but you really can't. You're just looking at the screen, however big it is. 
and you're not really looking at the actors. Like you got to be there, present and and watching them. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. There's this quote, and I'll never forget. It's burned into my memory, and I really, really thoroughly believe this. It's a quote by a very, very little-known director named Quentin Tarantino. And he said what he does is he checks the framing on his monitor, and then he goes and he watches the people act the scene. And in this interview, the interviewer is like, well, why? Why do you do that? And his answer, I thought, was just so perfect. It's, if I don't feel the emotion as I'm watching humans act it, if I don't feel it in person, then there's no way that I'm going to feel it through a little screen. And I was like, that is kind of genius, you know? And there's so much, in my eyes, validity to it where, you know, it's true because you really are kind of trying to synthesize and, in a sense, distill an emotion through a screen. So, you know, if you're not being affected by someone actually crying in the room, you're not going to be affected by watching a video of that person cry. Now, I think there is a lot of benefit to looking to the monitor, like we mentioned, framing. And I think if you're doing a camera movement and you want to make sure that that frame is always in the right position or you know you'll be able to go to your cinematographer and say you know just a little bit to the left at you know when you do this turn whatever it may be kind of thing i think there's a lot that you need to do in terms of that but yeah i couldn't agree more like actually watch your actors and watch the scene unfold with your own eyes like fucking darth vader man when he asks luke to pull off his mask so he can see him with his own two eyes that's what you should be doing <laughs> yeah i mean a part of me is like if i if i'm asked to shoot things for other people part of me wants to just be like oh i don't do like monitors and stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> they're like what do you mean you don't do monitors i just don't work that way <laughs> i mean back in back in the day of shooting film didn't have like you know a monitor available for everyone to watch you just have to look at the dp and be like did you get it and he'd be like yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true because like you're shooting on film right and there's literally no way to play that back you just have to have that trust with your cinematographer because i think you could kind of do the same thing too like they would have their head under that veil or whatever you want to call it looking through the eyepiece right and then you could check their starting frame but it's really just relying on the relationship between you two to say do we have it and if he says yes then it's like okay right on i guess we got it yeah i think that's kind of it's kind of nice it's very freeing too because it really lets each person focus on the really important thing that they have to do anyways mm -hmm. yeah i think it's just good for the building of morale as well because like i know when we were doing what we don't say if i turned to you and said you know did that look good and you're like yep i'd be like okay cool like i i totally trust latif i know he wants the same thing as me to make this look as great as it possibly can and i know he's not a fucking liar so <laughs> it's probably pretty good have you worked with a director in that circumstance where they're like did how'd that look and you're like yeah it looked really good i think we have it and they called you out on it or didn't believe you or something like that mm. no not really i do remember 
I don't remember having moments though when I would shoot something and then I wasn't really sure if it was like the strongest or something. And then the director would be like, okay, I think we got it. And I'd be like, are you sure? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think we could like set this up better or like find a better angle or something. But the director would just kind of be like, no, I think that's okay. But it's just kind of this gut feeling of like, you, you feel confident in it, like as you're shooting it. There's been plenty of times where I've set up a shot and just look at the image and be like, eh, that's not good. Let's figure something else out. So it's it's more just like trusting that that feeling of like knowing if you got it or not. Because um, sometimes you just feel confident in a shot and you're like, that's great. I, I feel like we're good with that. And other times you're just like scratching your head. And I think that's when you have to kind of rethink what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. Even when we are, my wife and I were shooting this 55 second short, there was, it's quite, well, I wouldn't say quite often, but it happened a few times where it was like in my head, I picture this kind of frame and, you know, we'd shoot the wide and, uh, you know, this angle, that angle kind of thing. And then we would get to one of these angles that I saw in my mind, we'd frame it up and it'd be like, this looks fucking terrible. You can see this glaring light in the background here's all the things that are wrong with it and you know you kind of have to listen to your gut at that point if you look into a frame and you know you're going to look into that frame and one of the first questions you're going to ask yourself is does this look good and if your gut's saying no then you know second guess that it's probably for the better yeah trust that feeling yeah well i mean in closing do you have any thoughts on the very very minimalistic short film experience you just had uh i think all in all i kind of you know i I enjoyed working this way and i I think i'm even like trying to figure out how to shoot something with even less requirements mom's like trying to minimize it even more and see how how small i can keep it which is in, in ways exciting um, because like you want to make sure everything you do is always better uh, than the last thing you did but if you're able to do that but also just like reduce the amount of stress and the amount of like extra things you need it's it's kind of like a an, an epiphany like you found like this strange way to, to do more with less which I think is an exciting idea yeah i totally agree it's something i've been thinking about a lot too even before i went to shoot this very very short short um it's something that i've been actively thinking like how do we build into what we do next and hopefully in a feature format you know and i think it's it's a really freeing thing in a lot of ways it's also very subject and film dependent right like if you're doing something where you have Uh, it's a michael bay movie with a bunch of car chases and explosions and stuff you just you can't do that with three people right but if you're doing something that can be told on a much more intimate scale i think it's a very inspiring thought process to say like what do we really need here like are there ways we can trim down or there ways that we can make this more intimate and really make this the movie we want because when you have clutter on a film set it's 
just distracting and it doesn't feel good. And I know maybe it's just the producer part of my brain, but I'm kind of thinking like, oh, you know, I want to get the day done a bit quicker to get these people out of here because sure, you know, Latif and I and the main actors were active every minute we're on a film set, but there's people, you know, that are largely on their phone or smoking cigarettes most of the time. And I feel bad keeping them here longer than I need to. But if that could be scaled down in a way where it was like, okay, everyone that's here is active and not from an overworking standpoint, like, Hey, you're not fucking doing anything. Go clean the garbage. You know, (laughs) like people that are actually active creatively the entire time and have a lot less, um, fluff positions for lack of a better word that is something that greatly greatly interests me all right well i vote that maybe we don't have a a part three of this but maybe like a follow-up in a future episode like once our shorts are done they're you know either completely finished or they're out there in the world we just have another like kind of look back again maybe not a full episode but just kind of little wrap up yeah once once we get get them done we can revisit this conversation yeah totally and until then i am matt rawson this is latif and this has been filmcraft it's brought to you by acast their podcast hosting service that's cheap and awesome all right all right see you guys next week